This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Trash as far as the eye can see. Garbage floating for miles in the ocean. It's an image you've probably seen pictures of, affixed to an article about ocean pollution or climate change. It's an image most people turn away from, but not marine biologist Fiona Chong. A garbage patch is a floating collection of plastic debris that came from land but has ended up in the oceans. And the plastic debris and the trash is carried there from land into the oceans by wind and ocean currents. And they kind of congregate there and they swirl around. Fiona has stared into the soul of oceanic garbage more than most people as a PhD student at the University of Hull in the UK. Now, garbage patches circulate around five different ocean gyres, or huge rotating currents. Think water going around in a bathtub drain course, the water never drains. There's one in the Indian Ocean, two in the Atlantic Ocean, and two in the Pacific Ocean. It's like a floating soup, made up of fishing nets, garbage, and peppered with microplastics. And the biggest one is the North Pacific Garbage Patch, also known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Researchers estimate that it spans 1.6 million kilometers squared. Um, Whenever somebody mentions, you know, a number like this, I struggle to picture it. But what I found useful was that people said that it's two times the size of Texas and three times the size of France. A whole country of garbage just swirling around in the Pacific Ocean between Hawaii and California. Fiona and a team of scientists have been studying not the trash, but the floating organisms called Neustin, who, in spite of it all, call the trash pile home. In their paper, they detail interesting creatures like the porpita, a bright blue relative of the jellyfish. It is really a floating circular disc on the ocean surface, and they also have tentacles to catch um, things like plankton and crustaceans that they eat. It is a welcome surprise to find life among all of this plastic and debris. In fact, Fiona argues this is no wasteland at all. It's a vibrant and thriving ecosystem. And it's a discovery that complicates our understanding of ocean plastic. On the one hand, pollution is clearly harmful for wildlife. Plastic ensnares marine mammals, poisons fish. But on the other hand, garbage patches have become habitats. So if we're getting really good and maybe indiscriminate in the way that we're cleaning it up, then you also risk to remove these host systems that has its own food web and further extensions from the food web to other ecosystems too. Today on the show, a look at the life in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and what's at stake for the local marine life when humans try to clean up their mess. I'm Emily Kwong, and you're listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. 
That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So I want to talk a little bit about how scientists like yourself and your team of collaborators have identified a whole host of life in the North Pacific Garbage Patch, a whole ecosystem, really. What are some of the species that you've found there? Yeah, so um, we'll start with the ones that we've seen quite a lot of. Um, So we've got this organism called the By the Wind Sailor, Valella Valella. Valella, Valella. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite satisfying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this floating um, jellyfish-like creature, but it's not a jellyfish. It's a hydroid um, that's blue in color with um, a sail Ooh. floating um, above the surface. And it catches the wind and it therefore can move following the wind and quite far as a result. So... Yeah, they're translucent looking, a bit of blue with tentacles underneath them to catch the food and the sail above to catch the wind. Yeah. Yeah, it, I'm looking at this um, this organism and it does. It it looks like a little boat yeah. with a sail yeah. popping up. Mm-hmm. But it's all looks it looks all very squishy and soft. It is squishy and soft. Um, Have you poked it? I have. Um, actually, in my experience, um, I've found them on the beaches because they get washed ashore oh. because, you know, they follow yeah. the wind. What else is there? What else is there? So another one that we see a lot of is um, Porpita, what we call blue button. So they're very closely related to Valella. So it's also a hydroid and it is really a floating circular disc on the ocean surface. And they also have tentacles to catch um, things like plankton and crustaceans that they eat and very interestingly with Corpita there's been observations where they have created a symbiosis like a partnership with small juvenile fish in this case that means the small fish is hiding under this Corpita imagine that you've got like a little umbrella on top of your head at all times um, and that's Probably because the pupita has stinging tentacles, which protect the fish from oh. anything that might come at it. And all of this is happening in a very small scale. Like pupita are mostly centimeters in diameter. And they've even um, shown that if you remove the pupita from the fish, it would be stressed. And then when they gave the the pupita partner back, they uh-huh. were much happier. <laughs> and they were also shown to, you know, actually be able to tell which was their popita. So they, the scientists introduced other popita to that fish that they got. And they didn't want to go to the that little fish other were like, That's not my popita. I want my popita. Yeah. 
basically, um, which is amazing. I mean, it's it's not only a pretty menagerie, but what is also true is that it's a food web. Like certain creatures are eating other creatures. Who eats who in the North Pacific garbage patch? Yeah, so the Gentina snail is actually a predator. So it predates on the phalella that I've mentioned, yep. as well as the blue button. Um, so these um, newsman species, they actually can't swim and they float with the currents and the wind. So they really re- rely on there being a high concentration of this whole system so that they could eat each other. Another really like charismatic pretty newsman that's a predator is um, the Glaucus atlanticus, which is the blue sea dragon. Mm. Um, the blue sea dragon is uh, actually a slug, um, and they also prey on other newsman, and in particular, the Glaucus actually shows a preference for the man of war, but they would also eat Falella and Popita. And so actually within the surface Newston um, ecosystem, it is a food web on its own, um, somewhat self-sustaining. But um, we also know that other non-Newston organisms eat the Newston, such as um, the ocean sunfish. Um, we know that seabirds come in and also eat the surface organisms as well as sea turtles. So. Um, they definitely are preyed on by much bigger things as well as being eaten by each other within the Houston ecosystem. Yeah. There's clearly so much life on this garbage patch. Like, not even a little bit, but a lot. And and one thing that your research found was in looking at the concentrations of or- organisms, there were more in the middle than on the edges. Why yeah. is that? Yeah, the currents really just concentrate them into the middle of the patch where there's a relative um, kind of stable patch in the middle of the gyre. And what what difference does that make to the life that lives there, that they're getting closer to each other as the gyre moves in? Um, So them being in a higher concentration, you know, allows them to feed um, because they actually need to touch each other to eat each other. Um, but also there are evidence of them just being able to, um, you know, spawn. Right. But also they they need to bump into each other to um, mate. Fascinating. Wow. So this is a real ecosystem. Um, but let's not forget where it's happening. Of course, it's happening in this garbage patch. And, and we know how dangerous microplastics and garbage is for bigger marine life, um, for entanglement uh animals ingesting garbage how has this research affected your views on ocean cleanup of the patch yeah so um it's definitely not a good thing it is a shame that us humans you know have such large impacts in the ocean that you know our footprint is so far out um you know plastic being in the patch could be harmful for other marine organisms. Like we've mentioned, we have sea turtles, seabirds, and the sunfish coming in, eating our Newston ecosystem. So when they take these mouthfuls, they would ingest plastics too, like you've said. So if we're getting really good and maybe indiscriminate in the way that we're cleaning it up, then you also risk to remove these host systems that has its own food web and 
further extensions um, mm -hmm. from the food web to other ecosystems too, um, which suggests to me and my um, colleagues that there needs to be better ways of cleaning up the ocean or better yet we just should should curb it at the source we shouldn't let the plastic and the plastic debris and the trash go out at all that is probably quite difficult but we should try it so what would happen if the garbage patch were just left there if if there were no cleanup effort if there weren't any cleanup efforts um the plastic that's already there will be subjected to weathering and you know chemical breakdown so big pieces become small pieces and small pieces become smaller pieces and it becomes even harder to catch them so they they would likely stay in the environment because they're persistent pollutants um they might then get eaten by um marine organisms but you know realistically they probably won't disappear um, unless the chemical composition within the plastic changes so that it sinks, in which case then it sinks to the bottom of the sea. If, if the whole world could listen to you talk about this garbage patch, what would be your recommendation? So I think on a day-to-day -day basis, you could definitely be more aware of your um, footprint, your, your own trash, um, and a better waste management system needs to be in place um, for countries that are really big polluters. If there were any kind of cleanup effort, I really think that they should be closer to shore. I mean, that's probably better because it is on land and closer to us. At least the carbon footprint wouldn't be as high. But again, that probably comes with a lot of other um, problems such as there is life in the rivers and how do you make sure that you can differentiate that from the river trash per se. Mm -hmm. um, the bycatch problem yeah and finally actually um, the fishing industry is a big polluter of the um, open ocean um, the ghost nets so the fishing nets that are um, maybe damaged and therefore like just floating in the middle of the sea those are actually what um are found a lot in the middle of the um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So yeah. they definitely also need to be held accountable. So changes to the fishing industry, changes to where we prioritize cleanup, and changes to how we dispose of garbage in the first place. Uh, Fiona Chong, it's been so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on Shortwave. Thank you. You're welcome. We are going to put a link to Fiona's paper in our episode notes. Definitely check it out. At the very least for the photos of the new Stonic life. You actually don't want to miss those. All right, before I head out, I have some news. I'm going to be taking a break from Shortwave for a little bit to work on a new podcast for NPR member station LAist. It's a big change after four years on the show for me, and I am excited to share with you what I make. And don't worry, Regina Barber and Aaron Scott are going to hold down the fort while I'm gone, bringing you the very best science reporting three days a week. Thank you so much for your support of us and our show. This episode was produced by Carly Rubin and Burley McCoy. It was edited by managing producer Rebecca Ramirez, and Rebecca checked the facts. Margaret Luthar was the audio engineer. I'm Emily Kwong. 
Thank you so much for listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.